0: Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, yesterday we talked about a number of theoretical approaches to international relations. Um, We saw the traditional approaches of realism, uh, both classical realism and structural realism. We looked at idealism, we looked at uh, institutionalism and constructivism. And then I suggested to you a different approach that was focused a little bit more not only on uh, the question of Uh, what do we know about war and what really correlates with war, but virtually all of the other major foreign policy interests of the United States, such as human rights, economic development, uh, refugee flows, and and many other issues. And what I suggested was something called incentive theory. And it operates very simply. It's a very obvious concept, actually, when one thinks about it. And as you go back and uh, look at all the uh, other institutional arguments that have been made for all these various other uh, issues. One wonders why in the world we didn't start from what was the obvious starting point. Uh, Maybe for me and for the uh, U.S. Institute of Peace it was obvious because uh, years ago, uh, having studied uh, with Myers McDougall and Harold Laswell at Yale, it was always their starting point on anything in international relations. What was the starting point? you focus on decision. Question is who is making a decision for something and you focus on that point of decision. Now that might not have been an appropriate starting point for a theory unless we determined that war in fact was not an accident. But when we looked at that carefully at the U.S. Institute of Peace, we discovered war indeed is not an accident. We could find one we talked about a little bit yesterday at this uh, Honduras-El Salvador soccer war that maybe you would call as kind of an accident. All the others, a decision elite, someone makes a decision deliberately to use force for the purpose of value extension. Um, They might also then have others that make a decision to use force to conserve those values on the defensive side. But initially, someone makes a decision. A decision is made. So all incentive theory says is let's look at all of the potential things that we know correlate. Let's look at the statistical correlations. Let's look at this not just in some kind of deductive construct, but scientifically in terms of the best evidence we have as to what correlates with, uh, with war and the creation of war. And we know some of those correlations. One that makes, I think, a great deal of sense is we know from present psychology, modern psychology, that certain personality types are, in fact, uh, going to be programmed to take higher risk. So certain personality profiles will, in fact, be higher risk profiles than others. We certainly know that certain political, theoretical, ideological approaches are approaches that are more uh, willing to take high-risk uh, activity. Uh, by the way, some of the students that we've had here at the University of Virginia have gone on to be looking at one of the issues that most scholars have not looked at because really a little worried about political correctness, and that is, is there a difference from uh, particular kinds of uh, um, of regime elites believing particular kinds of religious structure? And rather interestingly, uh, they are finding on that one that we would not normally sort of put as front and center as your top issue, that in fact, uh, Islamic countries have a somewhat higher propensity to engage in, uh, in use of force uh, what is the correlation? well no one can, can be absolutely certain that uh, uh, it, 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 it goes to the religion but all of the regression analysis everything that we, we look at suggests that there is a significant difference in relation to that Now, that may be a significant difference, but I would suggest to you that if you look at a variety of of real totalitarian methodologies, not just looking sort of generically at religious uh, approaches, you'll find a gigantic difference in willingness to engage in the use of force. National socialism uh, under under the Nazis. Uh, Leninism, not just communism, but Leninism. In terms of a willingness to engage in use of force, yes, sir.
1: Is there a correlation between, for example, Islamic countries and non-democratic
0: countries? Um, What is the the correlation between the types of, um, you know, whether elections are are allowed, for example? Okay, yeah, I know I know where you're going, and uh, the uh, the interesting thing is. there are more Muslims living in a democratic country than otherwise, and that country is Indonesia, uh, which is a democratic country. And so there is nothing in a religious tradition that, that dooms democracy of the rule of law, for example. And Turkey, of course, coming out of a, a period, a strong period at one point as well, highly democratic uh, nation. Uh, on the other hand, um, there may well be politically greater difficulty because of the notion of not separation of church and state. If you have a, a sort of a conception that church and state will be put together, uh, you may have a greater difficulty in being able to reach sort of the democratic uh, concept and a kind of wide variety of human freedoms. So I, I think there's some correlation, but one should not jump to the conclusion that you cannot have democratic rule for nations under Islam. I am not here to... You know, they're, they're, Islam is one of the great religions of the world. I'm not here to try to cast aspersions on any religion, um, but I think we have to talk honestly about correlations and things that are now there that people are talking about. So, um, individuals, personality, the question of... Uh, uh particular ideological belief systems, uh all of those are image one and they correlate. So presumably we ought to be thinking about and looking at that decision uh are some of those factors present. The second is form of government. We have the most important political correlation there uh, and statistical correlation anyhow, which is simply that democratic nations Uh, In fact, at least in fighting other democratic nations, virtually don't do it in relation to major war. Does that mean impossible to ever happen? No. It means that it's a very low probability and uh, is one of the very major sets of checks, apparently. And more than that, it does look like uh, democratic nations are less likely to engage in high-risk behavior, just as certain personalities are less likely to engage in high-risk behavior. So that now brings in the second image. And I would have thrown in image one and a half for decision elites around a particular decision maker because I think we all know that in lots of different settings, those experts around a particular leader that may be the one nominally in power are the ones actually that may be the most influential. So we want to look at that as well then we go over to image three notice by the way again classical structural realism that has dominated the field the only thing it's really looking at over here is image three It just left out all of the things we've talked about including the most powerful empirical correlation with war that's out there so now we add in from image three what are we looking at in image three? Is it just something called balance of power? No. We focus on decision. And so we're really, what we're really looking at is what is it from the rest of the international community, the whole world, that is affecting that decision of that decisional lead to go to war or not to go to war? What was it that was not present from the international system when Saddam Hussein made a decision to attack Kuwait and that is not just power think about it for a moment the United States and Great Britain had so much more power than Saddam Hussein but he had no idea that the United States and Great Britain were going to use that power against him. It. it isn't just power it's deterrence it's the communication part of it as well so again The starting point is decision. You focus on decision. This is not, by the way, to make some kind of argument that in image one, two, and three, what we're saying is important is just image one. No. If you focus on decision, the decision happens to be made at image one by people. It's also to some extent an image two sort of decision process too in relation to what has to be done within a particular constitutional system. But you're looking at all of those incentives, and then you're saying, what is the totality of those in encouraging the action or discouraging the action? That then, by the way, gives you some tools to predict what is the likelihood that Saddam Hussein might attack. And it gives you some tools to basically try to think about how might you avoid the war. Let me just ask you a question. Suppose that you had sort of picked up that there was a risk that Saddam Hussein might invade Kuwait. What could you have done to have avoided that war altogether? Yes, sir? Send an aircraft carrier into the Persian Gulf. Might have been a good starting point. Uh, What else? To, uh, in a very public way, develop the coalition so that uh, Saddam would have seen that there was a preponderance of uh, massed forces against whatever moves he contemplated. Okay, or I suppose you could have gone to the Security Council. This is one, remember, in which the uh, Russians, after the collapse of the former Soviet Union, were actually more strongly supporting Kuwait, even than the United States. We could have gone to the Security Council and said, you know, maybe it would be good to have a little training program here that went in from the Security Council, let's send in 2,000 from a number of countries around the world that are of course very peacefully just here to be training Kuwaiti uh, and Gulf, uh, Gulf State forces in Kuwait um, I would suggest to you under those circumstances there would never have been an invasion of Kuwait now let's talk about it for a moment how about the Korean War Korean War something that could have been avoided? Did it fit, by the way, the the pattern that we're looking at? What was the ideology of those that were basically behind the attack from North Korea? Who were those behind the attack? Well, as I recall, uh, the United States seriously misperceived China's intentions in the aftermath of U.S. saber-rattling, and when China came in, of course, this is further into the war, I guess, I'm not really answering your question. Well, let's go back and start with who made the decision for the attack on South Korea? Where did that come from? Again, we start with the decision. Yeah. Who had the power to make that decision? Who made that decision? I thought it was the North invading the South. That's correct. Uh, so, uh, Kim Il-sung, we start with that. He was involved, but behind Kim Il-sung, Stalin. And there's actually an ongoing, continuing debate as to how much the Korean War was actually initiated by Stalin, who saw the opportunity, or Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung was clearly begging Stalin to do it. And subsequently, of course, Mao was involved. Mao was probably also involved at the start in kind of backstopping Stalin, uh, because we have that that information uh, in relation to it. What's their ideology? Well, ideology pretty clearly, uh, pretty uh, extreme ideology, probably high-risk personality profiles as well. Are they democratic governments? No, just the opposite, virtually no checks in terms of the ability of whatever those people are going to do. And then let's look at the thing that could have stopped it, presumably. What's the pattern of deterrence at that point from the rest of the international system before the war? I have a question. Okay. When dealing with
1: um, international, uh, irrational international actors, is deterrence ever, ever okay.
0: useful? It's a Very, very critical question. Let's deal with this one immediately, because we had one of these questions yesterday about some of the other theories, and the question is, Well, suppose these people are just irrational. They're not really calculating properly, calculating correctly, they're just irrational. And they're mentally ill, for example, or something else in relation to it. Now, um, the problem with that is when we look at war, uh, we don't find that to be the case. There is only one such setting that I look at and say there is really a calculation that any normal person looking at this thing would say this is crazy. And actually what that comes from is super extreme ideology. This is Pol Pot, basically against Vietnam that has now put the whole country of Vietnam together, has one of the third largest armies in the world at that point, has been fighting the United States for years. And Pol Pot says, you know, I can defeat Vietnam. Uh, those Vietnamese, any Cambodian can kill 400 Vietnamese. And so he has this super extreme ideology. And that's about the closest thing you can look at and say, this was irrational kind of behavior. That was clearly completely wrong. Everything else you look at reasonably the decision makers in going to war thought they could win and usually it's a very short period of time the longest period I've been able to find in looking at a study of war on this is 60 days for the Schlieffen Plan before World War I with Germans, uh, the German Schlieffen Plan all the it? rest are very short,
1: Grand Grand Union, war, short. the Korean
0: War for example I thought it was about one week is that really irrational? I mean, uh, I don't know the Cambodian heritage and history, but presumably there were strong bases in heritage and history to believe that we, the Cambodians, can wipe out the Vietnamese or whatever. Uh, I would say this was very, very radical ideology on the part of Pol uh, uh, Pot. By, by the way, it is yet another reason that incentive theory is a better way to think about it than structural realism. Structural realism wouldn't let you look at extreme ideology as something that might impact the setting. But in general, what what I'm suggesting based on the data is that not only is you start with wars not being accidental, they're also not run by crazy people and they're not initiated for the most part by crazy people and they're very reasonable judgment. Saddam Hussein made a very reasonable judgment thinking he would take uh, Kuwait, and that would be it, uh, in about three days. The North Koreans made a very reasonable judgment along with Stalin, believing that it could take South Korea in about a week, and that would be it. And what we have not talked about in relation to that, Korean War was completely unnecessary. The United States had made two statements prior to the Korean War, specifically saying that Korea was outside of our defense perimeter. MacArthur said that from Japan, running the uh, defense perimeter down from Japan south, and Dulles said that as Secretary of State, running the defense perimeter north up to Japan. In addition to that, we dramatically cut all military assistance, uh, advisory groups, refused even to give the South Koreans anti-tank weapons to deal with a massive tank army that was being put together uh, in the North. So I would suggest to you Korean War, absolutely avoidable. This was a beautiful example of, you have to sort of look at what are the incentives in the process and what do you do how can you change those incentives? And in this case, very, very sad, very tragic, many of these wars completely unnecessary, and if you have the right way of looking at it, you can go try to deal with it. Did you have questions over here on it? Okay. All right, now let me stop right there, because you have a pretty good sense of what I'm suggesting to you, incentive theory is, and how it works. And so let me just take your questions at this point, because we really haven't had much time for discussion, but you've just asked one of the most important questions that Marianne just asked, and that is, doesn't all of these theories assume rationality? Now, for a moment, let me just say, by the way, if wars are occurring as non-rational events, no theory is going to do any good. So, incentive theory won't be any worse than any other theory, if in fact that's the reality. But the data that we have is that it is not a series of irrational deaths. People that are seriously mentally ill don't stay as leaders of totalitarian and non-democratic regimes or democratic regimes very long. They're going to be thrown out pretty fast. Uh, And so it just doesn't that we're not basically dealing with mentally ill decisions. And to the extent that you do have rare, really uh, strange settings of very radical ideology, like Pol Pot, who had all kinds of strange ideas that you you had to wipe out cities and put everybody back into the jungle and everything was going to be wonderful if we just lived the way we used to live in the jungle. Um, and a whole variety of other other kind of very strange ideology. Um, And at least incentive theory is now going to tell you you better watch out for those that have that, you better put them a little higher on your threat matrix. Today, let's say, the leadership of North Korea might want to have a little higher on your threat matrix, although the one thing that is there is deterrence, very, very large levels of deterrence that were never there before. Yes.
1: Two related questions. When I think of irrational actors, I don't think it has to necessarily be mentally ill. It could be, you know, related well, to my second question, which is, how do you apply a sense of theory to, to ISIS? Because I think of of aspects of ISIS as irrational, based on on, 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 a, on a radicalized version of, of Islam that would not say they're mentally ill. In other words, can't you be irrational based on religion and not necessarily being mentally ill? No,
0: I don't believe ISIL is is uh, irrational. I think. Uh, very extreme. I think it has a very extreme ideology that believes in uh, the achievement of, uh, of this caliphate, uh, <coughs> the elimination of state boundaries through the of force.
1: Right, but and they want to, like, to, as you mentioned, Pol Pot wanting to go back to the jungle, they have this vision of going back, back, you know, centuries.
0: <coughs> I happen to think it's a muddy ideology, okay? In the extreme ideology, it's going kind to of, go back to the 7th century, it strikes me as kind of you know, kind of nutty, like Pol Pot, in slaughtering people. That doesn't mean it's crazy or irrational.
1: But why is Pol Pot irrational, but this
0: is rational? I didn't say Pol Pot's irrational. Oh, okay. I don't believe he's irrational. Okay. I think he had an extreme ideology. And I think the super-extreme ideologies are capable of doing things such as ignoring levels of deterrence and things that you might otherwise have there. So you're looking at, in order to really get an accurate portrayal, you've got to look at image one, one and a half, two and three, and you put it all together. ISIL is very hard to deter because it's really a super true believer in image one. And for that reason, they're going to be out there doing that stuff unless probably they're taken down um, in it. So that doesn't make them irrational. It makes them super extreme in their ideology. And so far, by the way, their ideology, their you know, their actions are working pretty well for them in terms of uh, levels of Syria and Iraq that they've taken over. Yes, sir? Um,
1: you seem to be applying a sort of rational relativism that you're, you're describing actors as behaving rationally in the face of the information that they have and, and using their theories. But it seems like, for the from the point of view of sort of post-hoc understanding whether people were rational or not, you've got to. You, you can make a decision that, in hindsight, is irrational when you have a better view of the facts. And I don't, know, but that for whatever structural reason they didn't have good information when they started. I'm thinking about like Gorbachev being completely caught off guard by the coup um, at the end of the, towards the end of the Soviet Union because the KGB structure was not providing him with accurate facts. So. He was rational based on the information that he had, the information that he had was so flawed that to an outside observer, his actions
0: were not rational. I'm not suggesting that any war was irrational. Uh, The closest thing to my being able to say something was irrational is Pol Pot, in which I'm saying it was really a very extreme ideology. This was not mentally mental illness. He was not schizophrenic. It was not seriously metal at This is uh, a setting in which um, Pol Pot really believed this extreme ideology, like ISIL, perhaps, believes a very super extreme ideology. They're going to act on those belief systems. But I've even subsequently, I'm not looking back and saying this is irrational. And by the way, I don't think the way generally you want to deal with trying to understand war is to look at those super extreme settings. Look at the normal other kinds of major wars. Look at World War One. World War I was a very reasonable, calculated decision the Germans would win. And initially the Austrians were going to win in Serbia and the Germans were going to win in, in the rest of Europe. World War II, a very reasonable decision that Adolf Hitler was going to win, where he went in, in the settings. The Korea, the uh, Kuwait war, a very reasonable decision. These are all evil, profoundly evil decisions, but they are not irrational and they are they are calculating carefully, looking at those settings. But and you can easily, however, change the level of deterrence necessary to in fact probably have stopped a lot of those wars. But the the point I was trying to make was if you feed a decision
1: maker flawed information, then, and if whatever source of information they have and trust are wrong, then they can make a decision that is rational based on the untruths that they had, but that is completely irrational
0: from the point of view of an observer who knows what the facts really were. Well, um, you're always, decision elites are always going to be using the decisions they have. And so I don't know that I would call them irrational. Their decision made at the time was a decision that was quite rational based on the information they had. And we would later look back and say, well, if you had all the following information, you wouldn't have made that decision. I think that's true. I th- certainly, for example, in the Kuwait War, Saddam Hussein would never have gone into Kuwait if he knew the Security Council would have authorized uh, defensive action, and the U.S. and the U.K. would have come in against it. Um, I believe Stalin would never have authorized the attack against South Korea if he knew the United States and the rest of the world were going to come in with uh, Security Council authorization. So, sure, but the question is, you are always looking at, the point is, they're making decisions, rational decisions, these are not crazy people. And so you can't totally eliminate this question that Marianne has asked Because it's conceivable you could get someone that's, you know, is seriously mentally ill also on it. Or super extreme ideology maybe has a little bit of the same effect because what are you talking about there? You're talking about ignoring whatever the checks may be from image two and image three. And since these are usually totalitarian or authoritarian regimes, we're really talking about something going on in their ideology that's so extreme that they're really kind of ignoring the potential checks that are available there in, in uh, the third area. Yes, sir? So if someone's going
1: to break the law, um, they're probably going to break the law if that's how they're wired. So what I'm thinking about is if incentive of theory uh, focuses on um, sort of the psychology of a leader or the psychology of a nation, does that mean we can't come up with sort of any... Uh, international set of laws that's going to make a difference, It not sort of international law futile at, the, at that point? People are going to do whatever's sort of in their
0: head. Um, okay. What what is what is law trying to do generally? Is if one of the one of the things law is trying to do is serves is as checks on power. Okay. So you're trying to look at what will law do, what you can do institutionally and with legal structure. To actually be one of those things that will be um, an initial cost, something you have to put into your equation in relation to making a decision for against war, right? And wait until we get to that this afternoon because you're raising a very important question. But what you're really suggesting that is absolutely correct is laws function insofar as international law and ad Bellum makes a difference is it's got to be one of the deterrent elements that is deterring, and if it is not working effectively to deter, it's a cipher. One of the problems in a lot of interpretation of ad Bellum law is something I call minimalism, in which we are actually, the academic community, believing it's doing the right thing, is treating aggression and defense dissent. When that happens, you are removing the deterrent effect of law. So insofar as law, and Tony and I both believe the institutionalists are right, at least to some degree, in this that a properly done legal structure can at least add deterrence. May not be enough, but at least you want to be adding that deterrence from that process. Um, Yes, sir?
1: just want to get to the point about a decision-maker not having the right information. Typically, an experienced decision-maker in government will be aware of the fact that the staff that's advising that person has biases, and that typically they won't be making a decision based on the information they get, but ultimately on their own value set. So you may actually have a decision-maker that will make a decision completely contrary to all of the advice and all of the evidence brought to that person uh, by their staff?
0: Depends on the leader. It depends on the setting. You can be absolutely right. I mean, uh, we know that Adolf Hitler initially uh, absolutely uh, uh, failed to take the advice of his military that said we should not uh, seek to remilitarize the Rhineland. If we do that, the French will come in and the British will come in. And and we will lose, we're not strong enough. And Hitler said, I'll do it anyway, they're worms. And he did it, and nothing happened. And so that strengthened him uh, in thinking he was right on all these things, and military judgment was wrong. Uh, So sure, that happens from time to time, but the point is, you've got to include that in the process, in thinking about this, and trying to think about where words come from and what you do about it. one of the more interesting things is it was Ken Waltz who was the one that did this remarkable little book initially that, that we all used to talk about image one, two, and three. And then he went on to say the only thing that was important was image three. And it just doesn't make sense. Uh, and, and the more we learn about it. And by the way, the prospect theory stuff that we now know also of, of the so-called non-rational decision-making which we plug into our deterrence model now, is not really non-rational. What it really is is that we know that human beings all over the world are wired for certain kinds of decisions that we make in ways that don't look wholly rational. One of those is we know people will take much higher risk to avoid loss than they will to achieve gain. And we can can show that in gambling, we can show it in stock market investment, You can just do it across the board, and it works in international relations the same way. And so that has to be plugged into your deterrence model on image one or on your image three, which we've done in our deterrence model in terms of the numerical system of trying to look at the setting and score. Um, It takes a long time to go into all that, but I could could put the class through experiments, and it would always come out the same way in that, that uh, you'd go for being far more willing to take take higher risk to avoid loss than to achieve gain. Okay, one more question on this, and then I'm going to shift to what we should be talking about this morning, which is then to give you an overview of the international law conflict. Yes, Megan. How far
1: out do you start looking at incentives? Is it something in reaction to someone beginning to mobilise, or is it something years down the road, particularly if there's a risk of deterring one incentive that might encourage some other
0: incentive you don't want later on? I think you actually ought to be doing it uh, continuously uh, in every setting that you place some level of risk about. Um, And again, I believe for those of you in the intel community, that if we don't have a unit of the CIA and uh, the DNI's office set up basically use the modern data that we have to be looking at all the different images in every single one of these high-risk settings in the world. Let's look at it in the South China Sea. Let's look at it in relation to North Korea. Let's look at it in in relation to a variety of potential Putin targets. Uh, Let's look at it in relation certainly to Iran and a variety of Iranian targets that are going on. Let's look at it in relation to ISIL-Anon uh, an actor, and let's look at it through time, and then it's not just enough to have that nice monitoring thing that's now got it all, and by the way, that can put together far better social science than anybody's put together so far. <clears throat> we can really fund this thing at a fairly low level and bring in the best psychologists that are really looking at all the different high, you know, high-risk personality types and all the rest, put it all together and you, then you you don't really know how that war's going to happen. But you sure know this is, this is a high-risk setting. Then you've got to have another little group that's over there in the NSA on the policy side. And when that high-risk setting comes up to a six or a seven, bingo, this thing goes over to that group. And now it's been looking at what are all the kinds of things generally that we have in our toolkit that we can try to work with the rest of the world to lessen Risk in those particular settings. And then it, it says, you know, for example, before the Korean War, that was super high risk setting. Uh, and we needed to have had a policy on that. And if you weren't prepared to have a policy on that, you really then want the President of the United States later to say when the attack comes, not on my watch, we're not going to do it. You know, it, it's got to be a consistent policy ahead of time instead of sort of knee-jerk reactions. uh, So, anyway, something to think about. Um, Is it going to be the answer, the magic answer to knowing all the way these things work? No. Uh, Does it operate a little bit better than some of the traditional approaches? I think so. Um, And I think it also works to tell us a little bit more about human rights. Issues and all the others that in the long run you really do want to promote democracy and the rule of law, not from the barrel of a gun, but you want to promote it in a whole variety of different ways because generally you'll be better off. You want to take on bad ideologies. Ideology is enormously important. Again, we don't get this in structural realism. Uh, you do get it in constructivism and institutionalism to some extent that understand this. But you better take on ideology. I would, I would suggest that the, the single weakest front in the struggle against ISIL today in the world is effectively taking on ISIL's ideology, particularly working with uh, the countries of the Islamic Conference and Muslim countries that are, I think, today beginning to really get the picture. Egypt today, whatever one thinks about the human rights setting, Uh, Saudi Arabia today, a number of other countries really get it on the risk of ISIL. And so that's something I think we need to be engaging much more effectively. Ideology, the political side, is a critical part of all of this, and we need to put that in front of us. Okay, Um, now let me pass out to you something you already have, That's, uh, this, side. this appears on page 41 and 42 of your casebook, and it's a chart of the development of the history of the international law of conflict medicine. So now what we're doing is really turning to sort of an overview of where did all of this notion of, uh, of use at et cetera, where did this come from? Uh, what is sort of the historical development before we get into individual strands? We're going to start with the first of these strands right after this, with Tony talking about basically the League of Nations and the United Nations and collective security. Then I'm going to deal with a second of the strands a little later which is USAD that bell this afternoon that we'll look at. Uh, all of these are really parts of the United war conflict management that has developed. These are kinds of parts of mankind's toolkit to try to understand and deal uh, with war. Now let's start with this chart. You will see across the top horizontal axis are nine different strands. These are roughly the legal and political strands, mostly the legal uh, strands that we would be using, uh, that sort of developed in in human thought to try to be dealing uh, with problems of war. The first of those is use at bell. That is the question of what are the laws as to when you can initiate use of force. The second is use in bellow. What are the laws as to how your combat Should be conducted the third is a series of things developing for anti-terrorism the fourth are institutions for peaceful settlement of disputes and as much as I support those I'm as you've already heard a little bit skeptical for the most part that they are the central core issue in dealing with the serious problem of out of control aggression which is more analogous to the uh, uh, the gunman writ large and criminal side than it is to the civil side. Personal responsibility for violation of major conflict management norms. We think of this as the Nuremberg Principles, but today the International Criminal Court and a lot of other things, and it's been getting a lot of, a lot of attention. Institutional modes for conflict management this is the League of Nations and the United Nations and certain other things. Arms control and disarmament as a way of dealing with it. Deterrence and the maintenance of strategic balance, more directly in dealing with deterrence. And the national measures for control of use of force, we're going to find (coughs) that certain countries, usually democratic countries, are the ones that also implement a number of things for trying to uh, control the use of force. Those are kind of the principal strands that we've developed uh, historically Uh, in dealing with international law dimension. Down the left uh, vertical axis, we see seven rough historical periods. Now, history obviously doesn't come neatly divided like this, so the history of ideas will roughly um, be mixed up as things develop, but these will be periods at least that will show you roughly what sort of a period? What kind of emphasis there may be in the development of the international conflict management during that that particular period? And it starts with uh, just war. This is really the period in early early thought. And I'm focused here a little bit more on the West. Like like Tony, I would I would agree that, uh, that there's Eastern thought here too that one should put in. Um, but, it, and it pretty much comes out the same way, and it's the movement really from the idea that might makes right, the old Melian dialogue with the Athens toward the island of Milos, when it said, surrender, or we're going to come in and invade you and kill everybody, and Melos says, that's wrong, you can't do that. And uh, Athens says, uh, you know as well as we do that might makes right. That's the way it is. Well, that was the prevailing concept of the sophists and others for many, many years. And then along came some thinkers. Aristotle you know, didn't think that was quite right. And Aristotle thought there ought to be some limits on you know, when you should be able to go to force. not. that sounds pretty strange in our time. Uh, his, his notion was it had to be, you should only enslave people that deserve enslavement, for example. now that sounds a little strange in our time, but that was in its day, movement forward, I suppose. And then, of course, you get into the early uh, uh, Christian thinkers in uh, 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 St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, and you develop the just war tradition. Remember, the early Christian tradition was complete pacifism and resistance to service in the armed forces of Rome. But after Rome adopted Christianity, Then the Christian church began to shift its doctrine as well, and the writers began to say, wait a minute, certain kinds of fighting on behalf of the government is appropriate, and that became the just just war tradition. So that's what's really going on. You're looking at some kind of moral distinctions. Uh, Cicero, also a writer, um, Roman tradition, talking about, you know, the only thing that's just really is the defensive war. And then we have a, a shift really because we begin to develop international law. That early period is before that. But then we talk about the rise of the nation state, and remember we roughly equate that with the Treaty of Westphalia at the end of the uh, 60 years of uh, uh, war. Uh, Uh, between the Netherlands and Spain and the long war, the 30-year war, I guess, the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, that ends, and we have the modern sort of nation-state, arguably. It's not quite that simple. But we sort of talk about the rise of international law. So now we throw law in, and law doesn't regulate the initiation of war. Any state is still free to go to war. That's why we call it War It's Fact. But when you're in war, you have to abide by certain rules. So laws of war begin to develop in that period. So we call this kind of the laws factory, but really it's the one which we're getting the development of international law. Along comes World War One, And in the aftermath of World War One, the ideologists, or the idealists, uh, went, and we head toward a, or nominally went, we head toward a, League of Nations and a Collective Security System, which we never really get set up effectively. And it's largely procedural in the way it works. And then I've divided that period roughly into two because something enormously important happens in 1928 that we'll talk about. It's the Kellogg-Briand pact that has uh, roundly made fun of by international relations theorists, and yet it's one of the most important normative shifts in the history of the the world. Along comes World War II. It's, by the way, typically major wars that result in huge changes in the way we institutionally and normatively begin to think about all of these things. It's after the major wars that things happen on that. We go back and try to deal with it, deal with it. So, after World War II, now we set up the UN Charter. The US is now a party and we're hopeful that we have a collective security system that is now really going to work and keep the peace for a variety of reasons it doesn't i would suggest to you the main problem is it really isn't a deterrent system it is a collective security system in which a saddam hussein trying to make a decision to attack does not believe there is virtually any chance that the security council is going to implement an action against him and so What you really need to focus on in making the UN better in a collective security system is making things look a little more like NATO ahead of time in the high-risk areas in terms of uh, deterrence Okay, then uh, uh, we uh, go through the period of the Cold War particularly and Then we have the Vietnam War, etc. We're into a lot of Um, sort of proxy wars in this particular period of time, and finally the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990 starts really pretty much a new era. We go back very very briefly to the idea of collective security because it's working in the Gulf War, and uh, we try it in a few other places and it sort of breaks down again after that, but it's a different era again after the collapse of the former Soviet (coughs) Union even though we're beginning to see some of prudent, the tranche, the tranche plan, etc. In now let's uh, uh, look at two other items. You will see on this chart that some of these squares or rectangles have dark black uh, uh, areas around them. That means they need greater emphasis. What this is is roughly the greatest emphasis intellectually in that period of time of what's developing. In that particular period of time. Then, if you look at the top horizontal nine strands again, you will see that seven of these, I believe, let's see, one, two, three, no, five of these have a small D. Um, That's for deterrence. We have argued in incentive theory that one of the things you're trying to do to prevent more is to deter. And if you really look at those strands, insofar as they are structured correctly, they are parts of the normative and the institutional legal system that directly contribute to deterrence. Now, if your usad bellum first strand is not working correctly, correctly if you have an international court of justice that issues is confused decisions in the Israeli Wall case or the um, or the Iranian uh, Persian Gulf the Iranian platform case, you have turned things upside down, and you're actually assisting aggression in the future and undermining deterrence. But if you're doing it correctly the way the charter was set up to basically land on aggression and support defense, then it becomes something that is significant in a deterrent effect. The anti-terrorism treaties, partially effective, in this particular case probably really at the margin because we've not gone after the main thing here, we've gone after uh, criminal liability, and this stuff is being ordered by the heads of the state, and so for the most part, you're not getting them to be able to put them in courts. We ought to be going after civil liability and do us at governmental assets, but that's a different story. And then personal responsibility, the Nuremberg principles, if we did this well, so that you really knew as an aggressor that if you did this thing, you were going to come personally a cropper. That could be very powerful. If we set up, on the other hand, the International Criminal Court in a way that it's more likely to deter effective defensive action than to deal with the aggressor, then it will have the opposite effect again. And finally, just directly, notion of deterrence is one strategic balance, uh, openings to China with Kissinger and things of that sort of imbalance of power may also the things that contrib- contribute uh, directly uh, to deterrence. Okay, now let's quickly kind of run through this. Let's see, we go to what? Ten thirty? Uh, okay, or is it ten fifteen before we? I think it's ten thirty. Ten thirty. Okay. Now, fasten your seat belts because we're going to go through two thousand years very quickly uh, in half an hour. Okay, first strand. You can see what's going on here as we're moving from Mike makes Right to some kind of moral system of just war. And the starting point of the just war theory is you needed three things. You had to have the authority of the state. By the way, it would not have said it was okay to have a just war with, uh, with ISIL. It didn't represent a state. Al Qaeda was not representing a state. It didn't fit just war principle on the classic just war principle. The second is you had to have a just cause. And the third is you had to have right intentions. That is, your mind had to be pure, basically, and peaceful intentions, and you really meant good things. You were not using this as some way to really make a lot of money or whatever and annex another country or whatever. OK, and along the way, you had uh, you know, a few little chivalry and early rules in, in laws of war. I'm sure our, our JAG experts here could give us many more examples, but I'll give you one little one. That's right out of uh, Shakespeare, uh, King Henry V, uh, Act 4, Scene 7. Fluent. This is basically the war between British and French. Kill the poise and the luggage, tis expressly against the law of arms. Tis as errant a piece of knavery, mark you now, as can be offered in your conscience now, is it not? Gower. Tis certain there's not a boy left alive. And the cowardly rascals that ran from the battle have done this slaughter. Besides, they have burned and carried away all that was in the king's tent. Wherefore, the king most worthily hath caused every soldier to cut his prisoner's throat. Oh, tis a gallant king. Well, this doesn't look like the laws of war that we have today, but you can see people were at least beginning to think about early notions and chivalry and uh, certain laws. Uh, even in an earlier period. Assassination of Julius Caesar, I just throw it in because after all this really was a critical historical event at one point in the Roman Empire, uh, and they actually thought they were working for democracy uh, at that point. It didn't quite turn out that way. On arms control and disarmament, um, in the Second Punic War, early in the Second Punic War, period, there was between Rome and Carthage, there was an effort to, uh, to control um, major arms of concern at that time, which were elephant legions that, that Carthage was um, using against Rome. Uh, later, you had the effort in the Lateran Council, now it's the Catholic Church, that's looking at trying to control catapults and perhaps the crossbow. And a variety of other things they never really took too well, but people are trying to think about that. Then we have the rise of international law, the Treaty of Westphalia, etc. And now we shift really to a little bit of regulation short of war. We're saying certain minor kinds of things. You can go to war anytime you want, but you can't use war for the collection of debts. You can't shell and from American ship Panama City because Panama won't pay its debts uh, considered poor form, and so you begin to short of war begin to look at a few things a period in which you're really getting development of laws of war general order 100 and the and the uh, Civil War Francis labor a German expert on laws of war Columbia is tasked by Lincoln to go one of the first uh, Sets of instructions for the Union forces in, in fighting the war. Later, we got the Hague Convention of 1863, and then later, very important Hague conventions that are still important in creating some laws of war. As you will hear in your discussion about those, the in the uh, Hague conventions of 1899 and 1907. Can just to show you that. The terrorism is still around. We had this assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. We sometimes look at that as the precipitating event of World War One. It really wasn't. Uh, this was simply the occasion deliberately used by the Austrian leadership to decide that they could get away with an annexation with the rest of Serbia after they'd already annexed the well, earlier part of Serbia, and it didn't turn out well for. <laughs> For a variety of reasons. Um, okay, then we get uh, in this period, 1815 Congress of Vienna. This is the end of the 25-year war, the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Wars, uh, the attack on Russia, etc., and virtually all of all of, uh, of Europe with. Uh, the French learning that they can conscript people, and now armies are fundamentally different. And this works for Napoleon, also, and a the lot of other things, pretty well. And finally, Napoleon gets <coughs> defeated. And the major powers that are left sort of look kind of like a rudimentary security council for a while. They get together how do we keep the peace of Europe? And you have that later in the sort of the concept of the Europe system they're working sort of informally a little bit together as great powers to try to keep the peace and you have that at least from 1815 through about 1827. Anybody know what the Rush-Bagot Agreement is? Do our Canadian scholars know what the Rush-Bagot Agreement is? Well, and do our Americans know what the Rush-Bagot Agreement is? A lot more Americans here than there are Canadians, but... uh, Neither of them. know this was the actually you can argue the first real arms control treaty that was between Canada and the United States to demilitarize the Great Lakes. And recently, after the 911, uh, we had to go back and because we both decided we'd like a little heavier weapons on our ships in the Great Lakes uh, as a result of the uh, terrorism. And so we both agreed to that you put machine guns or whatever it was. I've forgotten change that we made in that that agreement. Okay, then along comes World War I. This is, again, not a war by accident. This is a deliberate, very carefully calculated German plan to uh, take over uh, most of Europe and believe they could do it. And they had a very reasonable plan put together. And probably if they had actually adhered fully to uh, to the plan, they probably would have won. But Usually in war, in the Fog of War, things don't always go all that well. And uh, the original Schlieffen plan was um, designed to permit most of the French army to come into Germany in a pocket. And the German general in charge of that decided he didn't want that to happen. And he was going to block that. And so most of the French army was never permitted to kind of come into this pocket. The idea of the Schlieffen plan was a right hook that would go around the, the, the arm of the last German soldier would brush the channel on its way uh, through, through Belgium, et cetera, and around, and then they would cut off the French army. Uh, and uh, two things, three things kind of stopped it. One, they spent too much time attacking Belgian forts you wonder why, who cares, go around the forts. But they didn't, they just spent days attacking the Belgian forts initially. Secondly, the British Army came in, and though it was very small, it was very, very good. And as an expeditionary force, it <clears> slowed <throat> the German right hook down enormously. And thirdly, they never let the French Army into the pocket. And there are a lot of other things that were happening too, but that's really hard. So. plan, uh, in the end, didn't work. Uh, But clearly, this was um, aggression. Now we're going to make the world safe for democracy. We set up the League of Nations. First, the U.S. doesn't join. And the British and the French and others don't really believe in it because, you know, that really hadn't worked in the past. They don't think it's going to work here very much. So when you really have challenges of The Italians going into Ethiopia to slaughter people, there's no real willingness to stand up to the Italians, and (coughs) in essence, there's a hope that they're going to be able to bring Italy over their side because they had done that uh, uh, earlier, and uh, uh, in World War I, the Italians that were part of an alliance system initially with Germany and Austria Hungary had shifted sides. And so they were doing that. Then you had the Japanese basically invading China, et cetera. And UN the League of Nations really didn't want to do anything particularly about that. So it sent a boat to the region, literally a slow boat to China, <laughs> uh, with this team to go find, to make an inspection of what was going on and report back to the League. I think it took over a year. For the slow boat to China to get there and come back with this report. In the meantime, of course, the Chinese are slaughtering, the Chinese are being slaughtered by the Japanese in areas of occupation, etc. And um, then ultimately there is a sanction on Japan, Japan pulls out of, out of the league. So we're not doing too well at that point. What is the league in terms of dealing with this first strand? It's really procedural. We haven't really gotten to aggression defense yet. We're really basically thinking about all this in terms of the sort of the idealist vision of just putting delays, arbitration treaties, and all the rest. So the whole idea of the League is set up initially on USAT ad vellum, that before you can go to war, you have to submit your dispute to arbitration or third party dispute settlement, and you can only go to war after you win that, and the other guy doesn't, doesn't follow along. Called the whole and league structure and not a very good framework for collective uh, security. After World War I you begin to create this personal accountability. We have provisions in the Vertrine Treaty, Article 228, that says all those that were violating the laws of war were going to proceed against them and there are over 900 on the Allied list of the Germans and Turks and others that we have on the list uh, in that setting. The Germans refused to basically adhere to that. Uh, with U.S. support, the U.S. is against this whole scheme. It doesn't believe in holding individuals accountable uh, in that. Uh, there's a wonderful little incident in which the, uh, a rogue American former U.S. senator, by the way, uh, who is a, a, a member of the military, an officer in the military, decides to go and, and capture the Tsar, Not the Tsar, the uh, The Kaiser. Uh, Go capture Kaiser Wilhelm and bring him back for trial. And that doesn't go too well, and that American officer is later court martialed uh, for this effort, in part because it's also counter to the position of the United States government at that time. The State Department didn't want that. Uh, We were not in in favor of it. Okay. then we have some rudimentary arms control in Article Eight of the uh, League Covenant, and we begin to head toward arms control seriously in the major weapon systems of the time, which are naval, large naval ships, battleships, uh, cruisers, etc. And so we have such a, a conference trying to keep a balance there in terms of the size of the French, British, Japanese, etc. fleets. Uh, Japan later breaks out of the whole thing and builds up a huge fleet. The United States doesn't even build up a fleet the size of what is permitted under the Arms Control Agreement. You might have thought, by the way, one of the pump-priming kinds of things we might have spent money on before World War II was building up our own defense. We were throwing out money generally in terms of trying to sort of pump prime and get things moving forward. But we didn't do it on fence. Kind of interesting uh, in this period of time. Something um, that did not go unnoticed for the Japanese before Pearl Harbor. Okay, now something rather momentous happens in the middle of this period. The French, seeing the rise of German power... Believe that um, they're going to be able to um, come to the United States and get a uh, NATO type treaty, security type treaty. There's no NATO, nobody ever thought of that before. But they hadn't been able to do that before World War One with the Brits, so let's try the Americans this time, who were decisive after all, in coming into World War One. So they go over and suggest that to the United States. We don't have any interest in that. But we say, you know, France. Let's have an agreement that will outlaw a war. That sounds pretty good. And so, we all agree to do that. And again, IR theorists kind of make fun of this. treaty you outlaw war, silly. Look at all the war that's occurred since. But what are we really doing? What we really did in that is something enormously important. We basically outlawed aggression. We basically said, now it is not free for governments to decide on major use of coercion. But no, uh, you have an obligation not to do that, and you fully have a right of defense. So basically, you cannot use force after that as a modality of major change. Becomes the cornerstone of the UN Charter later, instead of a procedural cornerstone here. And you have every right of individual and collective defense uh, wonderful to read the New York Times accounts of all this going on in, in in Paris by the way with the uh, uh, fanfare that, that went around around this. and uh, what we find is after World War one we would had the 1925 Geneva gas protocol 1929 we began to have another sort of POW uh, convention in 1929. By the way the gas protocol comes about because the Germans now stuck in trench warfare and afraid they're going to lose the war uh, somebody persuades them to why don't you try chlorine gas and some of the other gases that we could use to throw a great hole in the British line and then we can go through and end this trench warfare and uh, have our, you know, right hook go around, et cetera, and work. And it did work. Blew a gigantic hole through the uh, Allied lines. Unfortunately, nobody had really believed these people, and so on the German side, they didn't have anything to go through the hole. <laughs> and so it didn't do them any good, and of course the next thing that happens is, hey, they're using chemical warfare against us, we'll use it back against them. And, of course, prevailing winds go into the German lines instead of the other west. So it turns out probably to be an advantage for the Allies in the end when they uh, you know, employ all of the stuff against the Germans. But people are horrified by the mustard gas and the blinding and other stuff. Terrible damage to lungs and other things that are happening uh, in that. So a uh, treaty to ban the first use uh, in war uh, lethal and incapacitating chemicals and it is years later it's not until the next administration, the U.S. Uh, formally agrees to that. We set up the Permanent Court of International Justice that is neither permanent nor a court um, um, at that point. Well, yes, court, but not permanent. Um, and uh, then we have the um, Uh, section as well of the League league conference on disarmament. We try to have total disarmament now, 32-37. The Germans and the Russians really won't have anything to do with that and uh, all the different sides are very apart. That's under the League, doesn't go anywhere. Um, And then in the United States, there's a lot of isolationist movement here, just like there's a little isolationist movement today on the hard right in the United States. And they try to pass a series of neutrality acts, which they do pass. They also try to pass a constitutional amendment <coughs> that basically would say, you can't go to war in the United States without a, uh, a referendum to the American people. Well, you can imagine what that would have done to deterrence uh, for the United States. And the president uh, has to come in very hard against that finally, but it's a, it loses fairly narrowly by 209 to 188 uh, in uh, in something that's a horrible idea. But you can see the level of neutrality in that period. Um, There's a powerful, powerful isolationist movement. One of the uh, principal proponents in the United States is Charles Lindbergh. The great uh, flyer, the uh, hero uh, going across the Atlantic solo for the first time in human history. Uh, Hero all over the world. And he begins to go around the United States talking up the German cause before World War II and talking down uh, U.S. involvement on behalf of the, the British, etc. By the way, um, the, uh, uh, the father of later President Kennedy. Um, Joseph Kennedy who is the ambassador of the United States of the Court of St. James is doing the same thing. He believes the Germans will win and the Brits are nothing even though he's ambassador to the UK. <clears throat> he and Roosevelt have it out. Uh, he's leaking things and Roosevelt uh, ends his chances, Joe's chances to run for president by saying if he ever tries to do that, it will reveal the American people and how he's leaked things on behalf of the Germans, etc. Now, does anybody know the rest of the story with Charles Lindbergh? Some years later, we discovered—remember—he had a terrible tragedy in the United States of his child being kidnapped. And this was the thing that gave for Hoover his start here in the U.S., etc. But it turns out um, he had a secret marriage uh, with a wife also in Germany. And so, years later, probably about twenty years ago, we learned. Uh, that he had a second family in Germany, and that this was what was motivating Charles Lindbergh uh, in terms of what was happening. Okay, along comes World War II. Again, nobody would put this one down as a setting of, uh, of uh, not aggression Very clear, this is Adolf Hitler, uh, first uh, attacking against Poland, having the false war for about a year, then attacking against France, going around the, uh, uh, the uh, national line, and invading Norway, and then ultimately, uh, for his downfall, the bridge too far, invading Russia at that point that he didn't really need to do because he already had an agreement with the Russians. Indeed, the thing that had really removed the normal two-war Schlieffen plan kind of deterrent problem on Germany was the Stalin-Hitler agreement, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Ma- the, uh, agreement, that basically said, we are allies. And when that happened, in order to attack the West, uh, Germany moved all of its army all over to the West. As though so there were no risk whatsoever from the Soviet Union, which of course was completely different than the setting around World War One. So, not too surprising that probably a hundred extra divisions moved over. So, <clears throat> if you really look at one of the causes of World War II, clearly Russian policy was a very, very large part of that, in addition to enormous weakness on the part of deterrence that we always think about in relation to uh, uh, previous British policy before before Churchill. uh, And, of course, the giving away of Czechoslovakia uh, by the West to Germany. Uh, The first half of Czechoslovakia, then he just took the second half of Czechoslovakia without even permitting the Czechs. Hitler went back uh, you know, Chamberlain went back home and said, it's peace at our time. The uh, Germans went back home and Hitler told all of his friends that uh, everybody around him, that the West are worms, we can do anything we want to do. Right, so talk about deterrence. The okay, then um, we have now the uh, uh, defeat of Germany. We have the establishment of the United Nations. Looks like now we're really going to be able to uh, keep the peace and have real effective collective security, but lots of ways it really isn't. Uh, We have four 1949 Geneva Conventions now after World War II. Again, war precipitates many of these things. So you'll see these are the critical um, uh, treaties in relation to protection of the uh, wounded and sick on land and at sea, and then the uh, third Geneva Convention in relation to protection of POWs and the fourth Geneva Convention in protection of the civilian population. And suddenly we rediscovered in the, in the Iraq uh, Senate. We now have the International Court of Justice set up, and now the U.S. is participating, at least uh, in the process, um, even though subsequently we withdrew our ulterior acceptance of the court. We still party to many treaties with disputes going to the International Court of Justice. Uh, We have after World War II the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials in which we are um, making criminal the idea of aggressive war and um, also uh, humanitarian uh, crises, the slaughter of uh, populations, the Holocaust uh, from the Germans, and violation of the laws of war. Later, of course, we get the Genocide Convention, but that comes a few years later under the auspices of the uh, United Nations. Um, now, as we begin to get the Cold War developing, we have a strengthened collective security, and uh, things go wrong after the uh, Soviet Union now goes back into the Security Council after making the mistake before the Korean War not to be there and therefore you've got the Security Council action supporting the action of the war. So they go back, so we suggest, well, maybe the General Assembly ought to be able to do these things through the Uniting for Peace uh, resolution. Those of you that are watching the series, that are hooked on the series House of Cards, um, they, uh, I think the Season 3 in House of Cards has the wife of the President who was appointed as the Ambassador of the United States to the U.N., Deciding to bypass the Russians by using the the concept of the uniting for peace resolution to have the General Assembly vote for all of us. Uh, the real world today doesn't work because nobody would do it. We don't like it anymore either. We don't like the idea of bypassing the Security Council anymore, and the Russians and the French always hated it. And it became a reason for them not to pay their dues at one point. Now we have the nuclear age, and so in the aftermath of the (coughs) dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The United States goes to the United Nations and tries to propose something that would place all nuclear under an international setting, and uh, this was the Baruch plan. The Russians, who are in the process of developing their um, uh, their own bomb at that point, say no. And so, uh, last opportunity to really totally control nuclear weapons, uh, or at least a major one of the last opportunities, ends at that point. We begin to set up a whole series of collective security regional arrangements. The Truman Doctrine, uh, NSC 68, uh, with Paul Nitze. Uh, Tony talked about it yesterday. The Rio Treaty, which is really the uh, NATO for the Latin American region, including the United States and Canada, and this was done before NATO. People think about NATO, but the Rio Treaty preceded NATO. For well, so a pact, the Soviets set up something comparable in their client states in all of Eastern Europe at that point. CETO, CENTO, and ANZUS uh, are set up. And we now reform the national security process in the United States. With the single most important act ever in the history of defense organization in the United States, including Goldwater Nichols, that was more recent, but nothing is as important as the National Security Act of 1947, that fundamentally altered the structure of U.S. defense establishment uh, uh, forever after. And then we go through a period of kind of post conflict or post-World uh, War II, uh, Cold War settings, proxy wars, et cetera, the Vietnam War is, is number one here in this period. In the aftermath of that, we have sort of an update of the Geneva Conventions in the 1977 Protocols 1 and 2 that you will hear about in the World War discussion. Um, we Now this is really the core period of developing the 12 modern anti-terror conventions, um, these are pretty simple what they really say is the international community is able to agree on each of these one at a time certain kinds of actions that we say whatever your reason these are wrong and we're going to call it terrorism and you can't do it uh, starting with aircraft hijacking and then blowing up airplanes and airports and a variety of other things um, and in each case what's your responsibility it is. if you catch any of these people that did any of this you have to either put them on trial or extradite them and it's solely solely criminal I have prepared a, uh, a small little treaty that is a protocol of the 12 UN conventions that I think does something a hundred times more powerful than what all 12 do together it starts with the 12 here's what the world could agree or the specific items that are wrong that you can't do Right now we're saying out of these 12 conventions, there are civil li- there's criminal liability all the way up to the head of state that does any of those things. The problem is you're never gonna catch the hell of head of state you have a whole bunch of terror mules at a low level that you pick up and putting them through criminal prosecution doesn't do much, um, makes you feel a little better but then you get another 400 of them, think about ISIL uh, in it. But what can you really do to discourage the Iranians doing this. The answer is you get billion-dollar civil judgments and go after their assets and that of their leaders all over the world. So my little protocol is nothing but a little protocol of the 12 conventions that says we will now, for anybody wants to join the system, we're now going to create an obligation to create a civil remedy for any of these 12 things that are done. And there's no cyber immunity in those settings. For any of the violations of the 12, we will then work collectively also to, to reveal assets and all the rest of the I think we have an enormous force. State Department hates it. This is against the conventional wisdom that uh, we still like sovereign immunity. I like the rule of law personally uh, and think uh, we're making a huge mistake in being stuck in old thinking that came to do the wrong. But that's different. Why in the world should we today? not permit civil litigation against people that are deliberately being funded by foreign governments to kill and torture and take hostage American citizens around the world or those of our allies. That's a different issue. Okay. Um, Then, yes? So this
1: would be civil liability against the assets of individuals or against the assets of nation states?
0: All. Uh, if you have to you know, prove them in court, federal court, all the full procedural requirements and everything else, um, and so uh, if, if, you, if Iran, for example, funds a series of terrorist groups that start killing Americans, and you can prove that in court, you will go against the individuals in the Iranian government that approved it uh, and their assets. You go against the Iranian government assets all over the world, et cetera and uh, if you're really looking at deterrence. By the way, Canada has been very interested in this, domestically. I'm not sure it passed, but you had one because I got calls from some people. Yes, there's been three successful suits so far. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, two are in course right now. One, hasn't been decided. I love it. I love it. And remind me to give you a copy of the the treaty, of the draft treaty, because Canada might take the lead to be the one that would Uh, push it in the world. It's still recovery. I mean, the,
1: the decision is... No, but it's still recovering the assets that is going to be the hardest part. I mean, they've been well, able to get the assets see,
0: within Canada. But this, actually, it's, it's kind of amazing. What we've discovered with the bar when it gets into these cases, it's pretty good at finding some of these assets, but what we're doing as part of this, you don't have an ob- not only an obligation to create the civil rem- remedy, but you also have the obligation to, uh, uh, basically, to work with other countries around the world who enforce the judgment and go after their assets. And one of the things about the totalitarian leaders is they try to hide their money all over the world. They're scared to just leave it there. They know about the potential for revolution, so they've got it, yeah, let's, let's talk about that some more. Yes, sir. Uh, my assumption is that one of the things the US government probably is afraid of is other countries saying, we're the terrorists. Wouldn't that be one of the issues? Uh, well, uh, think about it for a moment. The 12 UN conventions are very specific. Okay? As to what it is, you do. I do not believe the United States government, tell me if I'm wrong, is doing anything on, in opposition to those 12. I, I mean, I don't
1: believe it either, but if wrong, we say we are. I would,
0: I would oh, say. Okay, you can always have a setting that the bad guys are going to try to you know, assert it. We're going to have later discussions about the whole notion of uh, lawfare, of people using law wrongly against us. In a sense, that's kind of the whole notion of the turning upside down of the legal system. But let me just say on that generally, it's the West, it's the democracies, it's the um, well-funded institutional governments of the world that have the advantage in that problem. Think about it for a moment. We have the large army. So what does Iran do? Asymmetric warfare. They get very good at it. What does ISIL do? Asymmetric warfare, you come into terrorism, you come into bombs, a whole variety of other kinds of things, very good at it. Where is one of the areas in which we have an asymmetric warfare, huge advantage, and the answer is the entire economic front. The rule of law is our front. This is the one, if we truly work together with democratic nations around the world, we can really put the screws for the terrorism of Iran and other countries in the world, and I'm personally very sad we don't do it. But you're right, one of the classic arguments, and they will argue it, they'll make it an argument, but so what? So Iran has a, now a case in its courts saying that America has, uh, uh, you know, been a terrorist activity in, in terms of, you know, supporting the Iraqi government or whatever, okay? What other court in the world is basically going to look at that? Because I've set it up so that you get a review by the other court. So they take that to France, they thrown out of court. Russia, Russia would like. And it's not light, always... Russia might, like but course. how many assets does Russia have of in the United States over in Russia compared to it? And the answer is, I think, when you play, that, you play that game, in the aggregate, overwhelmingly, that's our game. That's our asymmetric warfare, not that of the Iranians or the Russians. Yeah. Oh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't... No, I was just
1: yeah. going to say, I mean, I think as a practical matter, um, you do have these suits, and you do have them in other countries, and you have criminal complaints, and it restricts our you know, leader's ability to travel to these countries, That's um, right. whether it's the Secretary right. of State. So once you're subject to process, you know, there's all the baggage that comes with litigation, which is not just sure. who pays judgment. Right. Um, so I, a... I would be very hesitant to... Okay, but
0: every single one of those cases, by the way, Ultimately, Belgium uh, has dropped, has backed down, and we have not lost the ability to go over there uh, because those were all kinds of settings at the margin which you don't, which you don't want. Um, and what we do want is the absolutely clear ones. And mine is limited. I'm not removing cyber immunity everywhere. Although I'm tempted to do that. <laughs> I'm doing it for the 12 UN anti-terror conventions. I am certain the United States is not Engaged in violating any of the 12 anti-terrorism conventions around the world, so it's a you know it's a starting point. And yet the bad guys are doing every day. Okay, last last minute. Okay, go ahead, Kimberly. I, just,
1: I guess I would point to you, the same arguments that are being used for why the U.S. is not joining the ICC would also apply to the uh, structure that you're articulating. I don't think that would. sign up to that for the same reasons that we argue for the ICC, where we're talking about our leaders being told uh, and their decisions being analyzed by a system of government outside of our own. Well,
0: oh, by the way, we're, all, we're subject to that already all over the world.
1: Well, but we've signed several treaties with various nations that removes the idea... No,
0: you're talking about the ICC, the Article 98 agreements and all the rest mm-hmm. of trying to remove that, but I don't think it's the same at all. Uh, with due respect, I think it's a good point, you're making raising that because of the support. ICC is a, an international criminal court that's going to be making decisions in settings and around circumstances that we don't think is an appropriate court in terms of the way it's been set up. What I'm talking about are domestic courts in democratic nations around the world. So I'm talking about French courts, German courts, etc. It's
1: an application of rather the use the Well, this is existing
0: national courts all over the world that already exist. And by the way, many of these countries, the reason you had those suits initially is some of them have uh, provisions that you can uh, sue for violation of international law generally under, under their, under their courts. Mine is very narrow. I don't believe American leaders are going to particularly be significantly at risk around the world for violating the 12 UN anti-terrorism conventions. And I think the potential for going after the bad guys is huge on it. But in any event, Mary, we might disagree We might, we might agree else. to
1: disagree that's fine.
0: Okay, uh, last one, we got about one minute, I just point out that uh, what are the main things we're looking at today, the points of emphasis? Well, terrorism is big, so we picked up a whole variety of new things in terrorism. Rather amazingly, we have rediscovered Nuremberg and the personal accountability issue with the International Criminal Court, and before that, actually, the Yugoslav, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone war crime tribunals. Now, uh, with the International Criminal Court, I think if you did it right, this would be very helpful. If you do it wrong... And it pretend, if it actually ends up landing on defense and ignoring aggression, it's the opposite in relation to the terms. So if you're going to do it, you've got to have really a good court. I personally believe the great mistake made by the United States of America on this is to enter into the multilateral negotiation and do it in a separate treaty instead of through the Security Council. All we need to do is just follow up what we'd already done in Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and set up a permanent court at the behest of the Security Council, which is the one that has the responsibility under the United Nations, and we would have set up something I think that would have been very powerful and very useful, instead of the criminal court that I have some real reservations about until we were able to get some kind of a change. That's a different story. I've got some ideas about how you get the change that are viewed as impossible that you'll never get. I've got some ideas about how you do it, if anybody is interested in, in trying to, to do that. Then finally, um, the, uh, we have the creation of the, this marvelous little institution of the United States Institute of Peace, of course, that's basically studying war seriously with a lot of money for the first time in the history of any government in the world.